From the 809 Restaurant and Lounge in the heart of Inwood, New York City, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home in what we affectionately call Upstate Manhattan. I'm your host, Aaron Sims. And I'm Jonathan Bell. And this is Live and Local. It's our podcast dedicated to showcasing the musicians up in Manhattan, and we talk with them about what they do, and best of all, listen to them perform live in one of our favorite local venues. Who is joining us today, Jonathan? Aaron, today we welcome guitarist Ricardo Molina. Born and raised in New York City, Rick's been playing the quattro from the age of four and moved on to the guitar when he was six years old plucking out melodies from overhearing the classical, pop, blues, and world music from his father's paint studio. From the age of 12 to the present, he has worked as a guitarist in nearly every professional setting. He's played the road on Broadway national tours such as Big River and the Who's Tommy. And for the last 17 years, he's been the guitar chair one and assistant conductor for the smash Broadway musical Wicked. Previous to Wicked, he played a different kind of popular music by overseeing the musical direction of the pop boy band 98 Degrees from the moment of their ascent to superstardom, hiring three separate touring groups and also recording with the band. Rick's work has also extended to television, having composed the underscore music for three seasons of The Electric Company, as well as the cartoon Prankster Planet on PBS. In June of 2019, he was cast to play the part of the guitarist in the San Juan Hill Serenaders in the forthcoming remake of West Side Story by Steven Spielberg. Aside from his work on screen and commercial stages, he can be found sitting in and playing with various bands, including the Rick Molina Group and the Uptown Guitars. We're very excited to hear what he has in store for us today, Aaron on live and local and without further ado rick molina Thank you. 
Well, that was wonderful. Rick, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, man. It's a real pleasure to be here. Sure. Well, how, how you been? Um, well, uh, dealing. <laughs> dealing with uh, this change in civilization, as I guess we could call it. Um, actually, things have been, thankfully, well. We're healthy. And uh, there has been some time for reflection. And uh, I guess... I'm just being a shut-in, just like everybody else. <laughs> You're doing your part, right? I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing a good job of that. Doing a lot of grocery shopping and a lot of cooking at home, which is, uh, you know, a nice thing. It's nice to be uh, in a smaller circle of, of uh, commuting and whatnot. But on the other hand, also, it's, uh, I'm itching to get back into the world and play some music. Well, I miss that. I can't tell you how much I've missed seeing you playing live and it was a treat having you uh, playing just now so uh, could you tell us what you just played for us um, that was uh, well when we spoke earlier and you, you invited me to do this which is very gracious of you um, you know you said you wanted to hear some original music and it's it's not often that I get a chance to play original music, uh, except in the course of perhaps playing, you know, with the Uptown Guitars or with my group, which is kind of rare lately. Uh, most of my work is, is work for hire, so I'm called in to play other scores and whatnot. So I just decided to take some of the ideas of uh, larger compositions that I've written, because I do quite a bit of composing, chamber works and whatnot. So I took some of those excerpts and strung them together I had a bit of a roadmap, and then uh, allowed myself to just kind of improvise the segues in between the songs, in between the ideas. So it was just kind of a, a thing, kind of made up as I was going along. It's awesome, and uh, a variety of styles we heard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was um, you left me spinning a bit. I gotta say, um, I'd like to like jump on your word roadmap uh -huh. um and i was wondering how you um managed negotiated your segs because uh -huh. i did feel like you were meandering towards certain destinations along the way oh very expertly and um my impression of the beginning it was almost like uh, not to bring up we were talking earlier and it, it, even the beginning to me sounded a little bach Brahmsian, and it's mm -hmm. almost like an etude mm -hmm. it began sort of like a um, um it was actually uh, there's a excuse me there's a, no, sure. a, an etude that i wrote it's called the echo etude and it's written for classical guitar so mm. it's it's played in a certain finger style way to um, address a right hand technical issue and i decided to do it with a pick and it does, it does have a kind of a, I would call it a post-minimalist um, approach because of the repetition. It stays within a certain compass, a rhythmic compass or whatever. Right. And um, that, when that piece ends, it ends in a certain tonality. It's in an E major seventh tonality. So I tried to take that and I was thinking of the next piece that I was going to play. And I just set a kind of a harmonic um, exploration to get to the next setup for the next harmony. So in that case, I was going from <clears throat> E major seven to E flat major seven, which is the next tune called November, which was the second kind of group of music that you hear this melodic thing. And uh, so I just 
not to get geeky about the harmony or whatnot. Yeah. It's like, how do you get from E major yeah, seven about to, to E flat? Please tell me. So, <laughs> you know, in this case, I went through C. Yeah, yeah. You know, Third relations then, are always. Geeky. And then I found myself going to, somehow I found myself in E, E7. And then from E7, I moved down to minus minor third are we are we going to sleep yet no, i'm with you c you know, sharp minor I, I just got a coffee but i'm good though <laughs> okay this is like being at college again well yeah. well this is just the thing is i started thinking of of uh key centers and working right. my way through them and mm -hmm. and also just allowing my ear not you know it's like you you kind of plant flags to put some guardrails there so you don't fall off the you know completely but a lot of it is intuitive and a lot of it is just allowing yourself to just be in the moment and let the music mm -hmm. tell you where to go. So Have you done things like that before where you've had pretty, um, like th through composed things with, um, as points of reference in between which you uh, sort of anticipate extemporizing? It's, have you I performed in such a manner? Yes, I have. And, and that has been, I think my focus as I've matured as a musician because of the fact that I play so many things that are set in stone and that are required to be, you know, kind of like an expert, well, an expert rendition of something that is expected. You, uh, you learn how to bring the interpretation to the moment, but everything is set in stone. So the thing that is the most exciting thing for me is improvisational music and playing with other musicians. I love to play solo because solo you can do whatever you want to do, but when you play with other musicians, I think there's a quote that says that um, playing in an ensemble, playing with musicians is one of the most, uh, well, one of the deepest expressions of friendship, mm -hmm. you know, and humanity that mm. we can, because it's a nonverbal, uh, you appear, in sound and then you acknowledge and you communicate through sound and really what you're saying is i hear you and i like it and i can say something along what you're saying but it's all nonverbal, so that's a very beautiful thing mm -hmm. um, but there are also codified elements which are really exciting and interesting to me so to answer your question if there was a piece of music that was through composed um, usually I do this with the Uptown Guitars, which plays gypsy jazz music. And <clears throat> I'm notorious for doing this, and I, I don't think I'm the most popular person in the band because of what I do, but we'll play a tune, we'll go to play a tune, and I will uh, just start playing it either in a different key, or I'll stop or slow it down, or do it in 3-4 instead of 4-4. Four, four. And rather than waiting for you know whether or not they're going to go along with me or whatever i just do it so what this does is it it stimulates your ability to really act on you know to react on your own feet and i like to think of it as um, listening as if you broke into somebody's house because <laughs> yeah. that's really what are you what, what are you offering <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we get paid at the end of the gig. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm offering, uh, I don't know, like pay at the end of the gig and maybe I'll buy drinks. 
<laughs> you know, to kind of mollify all the anger. <laughs> and that's just among your bandmates. <laughs> Sometimes it goes out to the audience too. <laughs> but that's a beautiful way you put it, though, is that it's like you're, you're asking someone to meet you, uh, putting, oh. it, putting it out there. And, and it's interesting to see how that's requited uh, musically. I guess yeah. you get that, that's part of the perks of being the leader. I think so. I think so because if you're do, if you're you know yeah, if you're just uh, you know a sideman or something like that, that's just grounds to get fired. Right, right. You know, unless that's the agenda. Some groups have that agenda, and that's what I like to do. Is um, I I heard a very uh, recently I heard a very interesting interview with this with Bill Frizzell, the great guitarist, and he was talking about how he did a, a gig at the Vanguard with Ron Carter. And Ron said, these are the tunes we're going to play, and we're going to play them in this order every set. And that was it. And, you know, Bill said at first he was just, it felt so restricting. But he said by the end of the week, you know, Ron would play something, and he'd be like, what is he doing? You know, right. so you could segue between the tunes because you knew what was coming next. Yeah. How you got there. Right. And what you did when you got there mm. is really the essence of playing music, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it it actually frees you and and calms you down well, to really just listen and react. One of my favorite, one of my handful of favorite musicians is a guy named Craig Taborn. I don't know oh, if he, he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he 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 has this great. It's a podcast. I heard him. He was talking about the various ways in which setting limits frees you. Um, and that kind of just reminded the way he talked about how he, he the way he creates a roadmap. He'll do very he'll do very like pretty um, strict things like I'm going to only use like minor sixths. That's going or I'm going only going to use notes between you know these this register mm -hmm. and then i'm going it's gone going to in, sort of increase just emotional intensity and the end goal is going to be um some sort of mode you know and i'm going to get there this way or that way but sometimes it's very specific like i'm going to spend two minutes just meditating mm -hmm. on a certain interval <laughs> you know so it can be you know that 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 simple and then for him that's actually what unleashes his freedom because otherwise he feels paralyzed by the infinite possibilities that you're, you know, yeah. staring at. So yeah. I kind of totally feel you on that one. Getting back to what you kind of said earlier about uh, playing in large ensembles and, uh, and, you know, the music is made in between the songs, so to speak, and bring it to their, well, the pre-pandemic, you spent 17 years in the number one share at Wicked. So, you mean chained to the oar? Well, going, going in that direction, I'm not sure what's more amazing, having a steady gig for, at a Broadway pit or being able to play the same music eight times a week for 17 years without going crazy. <laughs> and, and, and listen, not taking anything away from the integrity of the work, and, and, and I acknowledge the, the I great irony. I know, it's, it's a sad state. It's but the I, not I, going I, crazy I, I, I gotta be me, you know? And, and listen, the funny thing is I acknowledge right now uh, the, the great irony in saying all this is that, you know, during the pandemic when there are no shows anywhere at this moment, 
Uh, so can you speak to how one navigates the world of a musician working on a long running Broadway show, you know, uh, and t- it's going to what kind of intimated in your laughter is like, it's, 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 it's a steady gig, but there's discipline. There's, um, there is the, by rote, what there are cues, there are specific guideposts you must hit. And there's not a lot of room for improv improvisation, um, throughout, uh, and yet there is a bit of a golden handcuffs to it at the same time. So, uh, because f- for many, it's the, it's the aspiration. It's it, for so, it's the golden standard for many. So you've been there longer than I'll say most. So it'd be great to hear you talk about it. Um, well, you hit the nail on the head in all those points that you brought up, Aaron. I mean, you, it is definitely uh, a, an unbelievable stroke of luck it's not something that you prepare yourself for to get that kind of bountiful um, just platform to live you hmm. know it becomes a thing that will it, it gives in so many ways it's such a profound uh, just uplifting opportunity I, most of the things that I did from the moment I got on Wicked on were because of Wicked. So the fact that it's this, what they call it, this Broadway juggernaut and everything, you know, I, it's like I'm stumbling over unbelievable luck. And I, I'm, not, it, I'm not a unique individual that garnered this kind of, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, he needs to get that show. It's not like that at all. And I, you know, so I, I, every day that I went to work, I, I always thought to myself, well, I'm either going to get fired for being an imposter or this is going to close, <laughs> you know, just because I was a freelancer all my life, you know, and I made choices to become a guitar player, which means living within my means. And it's not an easy thing to do. Beans and rice for 25 years because, you know, just didn't have any money. But, um, but to answer your question as to the nuts and bolts of negotiating, something which is, on the one hand, such a, like I said, such a bountiful uh, plus, you know, and then the uh, mind-numbing repetition, no matter what the music is, just the aspect of having to go in and what, in whatever shape you're in, hmm. you know, mentally, and emotionally whatever and to you know sit with these people and then you're in the thrall of everyone else who's going through it you know and then uh you're sitting in a in a spot the same spot and all that it becomes like your hallowed ground to the point where if anybody moves anything you know so it's it becomes a very unusual situation the to give you the uh, a thumbnail sketch of what happens uh, the first thing that attacks you is the body thing, the, the physicality of it. I never sat that long, never sat. I was always standing playing the guitar, right? So that's the first thing is that you begin to experience incredible, strange body things that start happening with your whole, you know, your, your, your body. And the, and the other thing is the, and this is a real thing, playing the same notes over and over and over the exact same notes every night um, is a is a very acute repetitive motion injury. It's a very specific one. Hmm. So it's not like I'm playing guitar every night. 
It's I'm playing these notes every night. It actually gets that insidious. And there was a time when I almost had to quit. I had crippling tendonitis in both arms wow. from playing that. And the reason why was because you exert yourself for the three hours that you're doing the gig, right? But you have to prepare yourself mentally to be able to concentrate for three hours that way and to react and to play the part. But there's a whole part of your psyche that is still a musician and wants to play other music and wants to be free and enjoy music. So I was taking classical guitar lessons and I was working on other music and I started to feel the sense that the music that I'm playing in Wicked is occupying this giant space in my mind and I have to hold it there mm -hmm. and keep mm -hmm. it pristine because you have to deliver perfectly. So there's all of this thought around that. And then you're trying to fill yourself up with something that is giving you an, a sense that you still are a musician. And what happens is you either over-practice or you don't practice enough. So you have to learn how to navigate this very strange area there. And then there's, the, then there's an era where you show up and you learn to play the, the show without thinking, where your body just reacts to the noises. So you could be reading the New Yorker and <laughs> just picking up your mandolin and playing, you put it down, and then you think to yourself, did I just play the mandolin? <laughs> You're looking up to see if maybe someone's looking at you like, you know, where were you? And, and you actually played it, right? And yeah, you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or whatever. So that happens, and that goes on for what, 17 years ago. What year did that start? Uh, the, the, the sort of the cruise control the, About the fourth, fourth or fifth year in, it hmm. started to happen. Yeah. And that went for about three years. Okay. Um, you know, unapologetically. I'm yeah. not proud of it. And uh, then there became the discovery when I had another gig where I couldn't play at all. I just had lost everything. You know, I'd been in the gig for about eight or nine years and I couldn't play a gig. I was just no ideas, no chops, didn't know how to do it anymore. It was just like not a musician anymore. And that was frightening. So that's when I started getting into gypsy jazz and I started learning that music and studying with those people and playing that kind of music and it began to invigorate me. Hmm. And in that process, what happens, which I think is the most beautiful gift that I've gotten from 17 years at Wicked, is about eight years in, eight or nine years in, I suddenly just understood what my position was in this music, which is to be exceptional. And that's and it took over. And if I have a conversation with you, if I you know, step out of my apartment and see you in the hallway, I'm like, Aaron, how you doing today? You might say, oh, same old shit, man. I got to go downtown. I got to do this, blah, blah, blah. But that's new. Even though we're saying the same topic. And that kind of shade of understanding is a very important thing for a musician in a long-running show is to understand that I'm going to play these notes, but today is today and this is this moment. Mm -hmm. And it's going to come out like this. And today I'm going to listen to just the viola when, hmm. I, when I play along. And that saved me. Hmm. So now it's just, whenever I play it, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm there. I'm 100% wow. there. So it is, it is a, a profound lesson. That's 
Jeez. It's a quite, it's quite a journey. Yeah. And um, part of your journey um, yeah. is that uh, it's allowed you to do many different things. And one of those things is to be, I, I'll say, I'll quote you on this, the first non-pianist slash guitarist to hold a position of assistant conductor on a major Broadway show. Uh, so um, not to get into the, the pomp and circumstance of it all, because honestly, we don't have the, the budget. But, <laughs> but, um, but, but I will say this, though, because having a theater background my whole life, Wicked is a show of immense musical styles, like many contemporary Broadway shows tend to be. There's a lot of different stylistic choices and styles of music within and out. Um, I'm curious how your background as a guitarist um, and your approach influences the execution of the performance when you're at the helm. Oh, okay. Well, uh, does sheer terror cover it? <laughs> yes, it does actually. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I, I had no idea. I mean, I had never pointed anything at a musician. So, um, oh. you know, they asked me and I said no. And uh, then they came back a couple of weeks later and asked me again and I said no. I said, you're going to lose a, you know, you'll lose a mediocre guitar player and you get an awful conductor. And uh, finally, I said, if you ask the other people in the orchestra if they want to do it, if nobody else wants to do it, then I'll do it. So, you know, they, I don't think they asked. They just said, okay, good, so you're doing it. <laughs> and uh, it took me four months of very in-depth uh, tutelage from... Brian Perry, who was the musical director at the time and conductor, who I, th I thank deeply for teaching me how to conduct. And he's you know, one of the guys that um, is incredibly well-trained in that. And he taught me how to do it. Um, and he was ruthless. And then I had people like Ben Cohn, who was playing the piano one chair, who's the music director for Dear Evan Hansen and a great musician himself stopping me in the hallway at random moments and saying, okay, now do, do this section or do that section. Let me see this right now, you know. So I had to memorize all of the gestures and whatnot. But to answer your question, there was a moment, I think, after I had done it like maybe a dozen times or something, where I suddenly felt the sensation of the orchestra at the end of the baton. And once I did that, I no longer paid attention to what I might be looking like, which is what happens mm. in the beginning. You're very self-conscious. And uh, aside from the, you know, the little dialogue in your mind, the monologue that happens, like there were moments that were kind of terrifying where you would, I would think to myself, I could just screw this up totally. <laughs> you know, usually when you're waiting for a scene, you're thinking, I could just, totally wreck this show <laughs> and the curtain will come down and I'll just be banished from the, from Oz you know in really? shame yeah. so <laughs> and sometimes there's that kind of thing you know when you look over a cliff and you go I could jump right now and you're like oh, don't jump don't jump you know you're it's but like you could strange thing but you yeah. could yeah, right it's, right it's like a strange it's a weird impulse. game right that weird game happens when you're standing with the stick and waiting and you're, you're like I could just totally screw this up 2,000 people behind me but Again, this moment of having the orchestra on the end of the baton and hearing, suddenly hearing how beautiful everything is and watching someone sing and connecting with them. And it becomes something that is transcendent. Wow. And to Did me, they, that was the deepest thing. I would hope for like at least 
some time to not have to play where I could live with the score and get to know no, no, no. you just no I would how be did playing, you how did you do it well I would I got to the point where I would play I had the show memorized I'd been playing it for 10 well, years yeah, so I could but, play it and then I had the conducting score in front of me so whenever I wasn't playing the guitar I put the guitar down uh -huh. and then I would conduct I'd be sitting in my chair and I would be conducting and okay. Brian would be conducting the show and he'd look down at me and he'd go like <laughs> and he'd say nice. or he'd go <laughs> and that's how I learned it um, that's wow. part that's another piece of the puzzle okay but I will say that the day I did it uh -huh. I mean I never had any rehearsal with a full orchestra the most I did was I did rehearsals with a pianist and a drummer okay you know when we were just rehearsing the ensemble um, my my parents were in the in the audience and my son hmm. one of my brothers my wife and uh, you know I got up there and I went like this you know Go. the light went on and it went yeah. like this and then yeah. I heard I heard the orchestra um, and your instincts take over too yeah well your years of you know you you try you try but to be honest with you um, <laughs> being a rhythm uh, you know rhythm section player you're acutely aware of rhythm you're acutely aware of the placement of notes not that it's more than any other musicians just like the thing that you learn it's like your groove sucks get your groove together <laughs> so um if you go like this yeah in your mind as a rhythm player you go boom da, 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 da. you see you know you're kind of expecting this right but what you're hearing is this boom dun, 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 dun. so nothing is lining up god it's all happening and the brass over there are so late and so loud and the drummer is right on and the piano's right on and the woodwinds are off and the, the strings are kind of in between there so no one is playing in time and you're just going like this but it just, sounds like they are but in the audience right everyone's so playing it in reminds time. me of the first time i played a pipe organ in a big space that was the weirdest thing is the delay Right. from everything yeah it's kind of right. an interesting so it's like flying a kite you know you pull it yeah and then the kite goes up well we're gonna switch <laughs> gears to a different kind of musical expression and creativity mm -hmm. uh wicked i think allowed this too uh because you had that kind of um in an in, in, in advertent way it allows you to do other things yeah uh so you spent three years composing incidental music as the underscore composer of the electric company for the Sesame Workshop, yeah. uh, amongst other things. Right. Um, can you speak to what makes a successful underscore and also a bit about the process of writing incidental music for television? Oh yeah, the successful underscore is the music that's never heard. You know, I mean, in the rare, you know, Dr. Zhivago or Titanic, you know, there, there are these, you know, this is music that is just, it's part of the part of what's happening in the in the movie. It becomes a character in the movie. But the things that are beautiful, the things that are uh, to me are exceptional in threading that needle is is to create something where there's a feeling. There's just kind of a murmur in your mind or in your 
you, you're just lifted into the scene, but you don't know how it happens. Mm. And that's where the really successful uh, underscore comes from. It's like, it's there, but you don't know it. And that's, you know, like I said, it's like threading a needle. You have to be very careful how to do it. You, sometimes you, you work in opposites, like there's a lot of action and you slow the music way down for the action or take it out. Uh, and the opposite happens too. You know, you can add a lot of music when something's just sitting there and suddenly, you know, it's like a big crescendo or something. Or maybe just, you know, a roll on a cymbal or, I don't know, so a lot of different things can happen. Blow a whistle. But um, as far as the process, it's really interesting because uh, I don't really know how, how it happens, but I will relate a quick story. When I was uh, about eight or nine years old, my father took me to MoMA. Uh, my father was a painter, and he took me, he had been telling me about Guernica, the Picasso mural, which was in black and white, and he had explained to me um, the historical um, significance of that piece of work. And my dad worked on Madison Avenue as a, as a storyboard, art, as an artist uh, in, you know, advertising, commercial artist. So I went to work with him and for lunch we went to MoMA and he took me up through the back stairs. Uh, we went in through the garden where the Henry Moore sculptures were and then we went in, we went up through the back stairs. So it was on the third floor. We're walking up these stairs and then the door, he opens the door and he goes, there's Guernica. And I, I looked and, you know, there's this enormous black and white, you know, and the horse and the baby. And uh, I heard it. Hmm. I heard, I heard it. You know, I heard music. And on the side panel were all of the sketches, all of the studies for it. I went and I looked at them, you know, and just saw how it was done. But I was looking at this piece of artwork and I could hear music. And I still tap into that when, you know, if I have to do something like that, I just tap into that mode. I just look and then I hear it. Hmm. Well, the philosophical viewpoint that I, that has helped me through this is to understand that the, there is no real willful control here. Like, I'm not actually writing music to the film. It's I'm just experiencing this moment and making some sounds to it. And if I go back and do it again, it'll be different and it'll be just as authentic because it'll be that moment. The beauty and the, the remarkable thing about these artistic endeavors, when they are successful, when they move you to tears, when they make you laugh, when they make you angry, is the, um, is the confluence of all of these people that were working at the same time somehow hit some kind of vibration that worked. That's well put. You know, the thing with Spielberg, when I did that, when I did that shoot and I was there for a week, you know, I had been at Wicked for 16, 17 years, almost 17 years, and experiencing you know, such a high level of art, you know, and such an exquisitely constructed piece of work. And for that week that I was there watching 
140 dancers dancing in, I think it was about 102 degrees that July on the sound stage, no fans or anything because we're shooting and watching these people dance all day long and seeing someone do a scene 34 times and having to get up there in a tuxedo in a pink tuxedo and play this you know over and over and over and all of these the the quiet the calm the organization and the absolute commitment of 150% from every single person in that gymnasium <laughs> taught me that it's possible and it's it's demanded that's the way it has to be. So you learn to be as excellent as you can at all times. And that's a great, great, great feeling. Because then you can really be, you can, you can be a real taskmaster master to yourself mm -hmm. and to what you're actually doing. Really squeeze out the best that you could be. And that feels so good when it happens. Yeah, that's, that is really empowering to hear going into where we are now in the pandemic to feel empowered because it's upended performance calendars as we've said um this is your first live gig in a long time huh rick eight months <laughs> and uh <laughs> along with everything else of course it's been a very trying time for artists yeah. in general the little musicians and so I, I just on a ending note here with you is curious of like have you found that this disruption has allowed you to pursue some new directions. Um, we'll call it those moments between the songs, if you will, <laughs> between your normal gigs, between those bread and butter gigs that, of your real, of your, you know, your, your previous pandemic life. Have you yes. found some connectivity in new things? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm studying the mandolin, so I'm doing a lot of mandolin playing, a lot. And I'm also studying composition with my composition teacher, uh, who I had the last lesson 30 years ago. Mm. And uh, he's great, Edgar Grana. And uh, he's been gracious enough to take me on again. Uh, I've been writing a lot of uh, chamber works and small ensemble works. So uh, having this time where I don't have to go to the theater and. You know, the whole thing where it's like, you know, you get the green juice and, you know, you work out, <laughs> like, you know, get on the subway and, uh, you know, read the Kindle and you know, all this stuff that we do on the way there and, and whatever. And I, I do miss the camaraderie. I miss, I miss social inter interactions. That's, a, that's a, an interesting kind of pause that's happened here. That's why I said at the beginning is civilizational pause. But... Um, the, the the opportunity to expand and to grow, and to take you know my time with things has really been amazing. It's an uninterrupted. I can do uninterrupted work, which hmm. is something that in New York City, by definition, and by the, the fact that we are freelance musicians and we do what we do, it's difficult to find long stretches of uninterrupted time. So. The benefits and the the payoffs from those, the dividends from from those contract, you know, uh, uh, open periods of, of concentration, are unique in themselves. You don't get that all the time. To be able to work on a piece for three, four days uninterrupted, is is a real. Some people are unnerved by it. 
well, you know, interestingly. Yes, yeah. I, I know that because, you know, we all have our handles, the way that we attach ourselves to our lives, you know, to give ourselves validity and a sense of the movement of time and forward motion. Um, I have always been able to be kind of introverted and mm. solitary mm -hmm. in that way. So it's, it, it helps quite a bit to have this time. Right. Where do uh, listeners, uh, where can they go to hear your compositions? Um, I have a YouTube channel. Okay. So I think that's, I do, what I do is I make little films and I put music to them. Oh, nice. And, and there's a lot of different uh, styles that you'll find there. I have a bunch of music up on Bandcamp now. I have a, a Bandcamp page. And, uh, you know, okay. all you have to do is just look for Rick Molina, okay. R-I-C-M-O-L-I-N-A. And that, that'll lead you, you know, to just Google that and you'll find all kinds of kinds of things but but the YouTube is where I concentrate putting music things on there okay and uh, and Bandcamp well thanks again Rick for being here today and joining us for this live and local episode of In What Artwork Center it's really great to see you man oh it's great to see you too Aaron thanks a lot so much certainly certainly sir uh, well again In What Artworks On Air is where you meet musicians filmmakers writers theater makers and artists of all kinds who make their home here in Upper Manhattan if you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Uh, thanks again to 809 Restaurant and Lounge here on Dykeman Street and to HeightSites.com for local uptown promotional support. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all that we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Alfresco, Pop-Up Art Galleries, live performances, and so much more. And if you would like to support On Air and our free venture here, uh, please make a tax-free donation at inwoodartworks.nyc backslash donate. Inwood Artworks On Air is made possible with funding from the NYC and Company Foundation with support from Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer and the Niska Electronic Media and Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. From the top of Manhattan and the bottom of our hearts, thank you for tuning in today. This is Aaron Sims. I'm Jonathan Bill. For Inwood Artworks On Air.